Anyway, we are in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians, and we are this morning at a bit of a crossroads. We've talked a few different times about how the book of Ephesians is divided, like many of Paul's letters, into two different halves. The first half is filled with theology. It tells us the realities of our situation, who we are in Christ. The second half is full of uh, really imperatives. It tells us what to do because we are in Christ. And this passage this morning is the turning point. It opens up. Paul says right at the beginning, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. That word, therefore, I learned this when I was growing up um, in church. If you, if you hear it, you have to look, or if you see the word, therefore, i got to get this right. If you see the word, therefore, you have to look to see what it's, Dorothy knows it, therefore. It's corny, it's terrible, but it's really, really helpful as you're reading scripture. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you know that it looks back to something. And so Paul here, he's transitioning. He says, I, therefore, because of all of these things that have happened in the first three chapters, all the things that we've discussed, because of all of that, all of this. Just to recap quickly, we've talked about, in the first half of the book, we talked about how Christ is exalted above all things, Right? How God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, He has a plan for all time to unite all things in Christ. All of the wickedness, all of the evil that Adam and Eve brought into this world. Instead of subduing the earth like they were supposed to, they, they embraced their own sin, and so they brought sin and death into the world. And all of this needs to be fixed. So God has a plan from before the foundation of the world to unite everything in Christ, to sum everything up. And what that looks like on a practical level is that God makes a body of people. Christ is the head of this body. And there is a body of people who are united underneath the headship of Christ. We saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that this has an individual aspect. The first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 tell us that. Each one of us were originally rebellious. That is our default state. We are all born sinners, and we can have forgiveness of our sins. We can have new life in Christ. But it's not just an individual thing. It's also a corporate thing. It is a group thing. We are all united together in one body. We are no longer the Gentiles who were far off, who had to stay outside of the temple, who didn't have access to circumcision and the covenants and the sacrifice. They didn't have access to God. We are no longer far off, though, but because of Christ, there's not Jew or Gentile. We are united into the body of God's people. So there's an individual aspect. I can be saved. I can be right with God in my own heart and my own life. And there's a corporate aspect. We are all brought together in and through and with Christ. We are united with him. And this is the way that God brings all things together. This is the way that God fixes creation. This is a way God unites all things underneath the headship of Christ. So when Paul says, I, therefore, he's looking back to all of this. Because we are all united in Christ, because of that, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Our passage this morning deals with the unity of the body. We've been looking at unity a lot. It's a theme that runs through the book of Ephesians. Next week, we're actually going to look at the diversity of the body, how God has gifted different members of this body with different gifts. Just as, you know, my hand can't do things that my ears do, and vice versa, God has given us a diversity of gifts. But today, this morning, we're looking at how we are one in Christ, how we are united to Christ. Before we dive into the first three verses of this chapter, I want to look at verses four through six. There's a really interesting, what probably would have been a poem in Paul's day. Verses four through six, they contain seven ones. The word one shows up seven times. It's the number of perfection. It was certainly used this way by Paul intentionally. This may have been an ancient hymn. It might have been an ancient creed. Maybe Paul wrote it. Maybe he was using something somebody else wrote. We don't know. But Paul uses this hymn that talks about seven unified things. And this group of seven is divided into groups of three. There are three things that are associated with the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. There's two th- or three things, again, that are associated with the Son, the second member of the Trinity. And then he ends by talking about God the Father. And when you add all those things up, we get seven ones. I want to look at those briefly before we look at the first three verses. He begins... There is one body, this is verse number four of chapter four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We've talked a lot about the one body, right? We are no longer separate. There's no longer God's people and then the people who are far off. There is just the people of God. We are God's people united into one body. This body is full of different people. It's full of white people. It's full of black people. It's full of Asian people. It's full of people who vote Republican. It's full of people who vote Democrat. It's full of people from every walk of life from all around the world. We are united in one body because of Jesus Christ. There is one spirit. If you've been reading through the book of Ephesians every week, as I've encouraged you to do, And I would once again encourage you, keep reading through the book of Ephesians. Let this book wash over your heart and soul through the week. You'll get so much more out of these sermons. If you've been reading through the book of Ephesians, you'll remember talk about the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse number 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we both, these two sections, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one Spirit. We have once again the three members of the Trinity. Through Christ, we have access to God through the Spirit. A couple verses later in chapter 2, verses 22. And in him, you too, you also, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. If you remember back to chapter 1, the Spirit is the one who is the down payment of the thing that is to come. He is the guarantee of it. He is the seal of our salvation on our hearts. He is the one who does the work of uniting us together. He is the one whom we have prayed that will be among us today, uniting us as different members of the body of Christ, uniting us into one whole. He is the one who brings us together. He is the one who applies the work of Christ on our lives 
He is the one who ultimately brings us to God. The reason we are one body is because there is one spirit at work in our lives. And Paul finishes that verse, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We've talked about this in the past. We talked about this at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, how being called by God leads us to hope. The illustration I use then is the illustration I'm going to repeat now. It's the idea of a father standing outside of a burning house with his son, with his child up on the second floor in the window. The son can't get out. The only way of escape is to jump into his father's arms. That's the only way he can live. So the father calls to his son, jump. He calls him out of the window. He calls him out of the place where he was. And he encourages him to jump because the father will catch him. What happens? Of course the child jumps, right? Because the child knows the one who has called him. The child knows that because he trusts the one who has called him completely, the child has no doubt that his father will catch him. And we know that when our father, God the Father, calls us out of our sin, he calls us out of the life that we have lived, he calls us to a new life, we know that what he has promised, the eternal life that he has promised, the uniting all things under the headship of Christ, we know that he will accomplish these things. So because our father has called us, we have hope. And we know this hope through the Spirit. There's one body, one Spirit, one hope. Verse number five, he goes on to his next triad, his next set of three. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The word Lord here doesn't refer to God the Father, it refers to Christ. This is actually, if you kind of look at the context of the day, any Ephesian who would have read this would have immediately known what Paul was talking about. When he says Jesus Christ is Lord, that means Caesar is not Lord. The people of that day would have been expected to confess that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the emperor. emperor. He is the Lord of our lives. But Christian reality means that we must confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is our Messiah. He is our King. He is the one who will reign as a human being next to God the Father over all of creation, and unite heaven and earth into one. He's the king. He is our one Lord. There's one faith. When we talk about faith, we're talking about trust in something. We know that faith is not just, it's not just a, uh, an idea of spirituality. It's not just, oh, I have faith. You know, I believe there's a God or something. You know, I, I have faith. That's how we hear, it, hear that word used so often. But when we talk about faith, we must mean faith that has an object, faith in something. You can't just have faith. It doesn't mean just being spiritual. It means you have to trust something. And when we talk about one faith, when Paul talks about it here, he means that Christ is the only true object of our faith. And once again, looking back to the first half of Ephesians, we saw that there's no boasting in our own works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. There's no boasting in any of the things that we have done. Our faith cannot be in anything that we have done. It can't be in our works. It can't be in the fact that we go to church, the fact that we may tithe. None of those things. Our faith has to be in Christ 
and in Christ alone. He is our only hope. The last tri- or the last part of this triad in verse number five is a little bit a little bit more tricky. One baptism, and this could mean a few different things. And depending on your denominational background and you know what commentators you read, you'll come to some different conclusions on this. But I think it's best to see baptism here as union with Christ. As you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll notice the words in Christ, with Christ, in him. Those kind of words repeated over and over and over and over again. Because we aren't just united together just to be united together. We are united together because we all have faith in Christ. That is the common denominator. We are united to him. When we are baptized into Christ, it means his death counts for ours. So we don't have to receive the punishment for our sins. When we are baptized into Christ, it means his new life counts for ours. So we can look forward to the resurrection when one day God will make all things new because we are united to Christ. That is how we get in on all of these benefits. Everything that Christ has earned, we receive the benefits from because we are baptized into Christ. And Paul finishes this, he finishes this hymn or creed or doxology, whatever you want to call it, verse number six, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all things. God is the one who, according to Ephesians 1, had the plan. And Paul talks about this plan a number of times throughout the book of Ephesians, a plan from before the foundation of the world. He knew Adam and Eve would sin. He knew things would start to go haywire as soon as he created the world. So God had a plan from before the foundation of the world to fix everything. And all through human history, as we read through the scriptures, as we read through God's dealings with people, all of that is part of his plan to bring us to him. God works through history. He is over all things, in all things, through all things. He is working all things for his glory. So that at the end of all things, he is praised. We will bring glory to God because of what he has done for us through human history. There's these seven things, body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, one God. All of these things are one. So what does this mean for us? What practical effect does it have on our life that we are united into one body, that we serve one Lord, that we have only one baptism into Christ? What does that mean for us? Paul begins in chapter 4, verse number 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy. The theme of walking is, once again, one that Paul has been using throughout this letter. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, we used to walk in the ways of this world. We used to be influenced by the flesh and the devil, following our own desires. But in Ephesians 2.10, we are called from that, we are changed And now God has prepared for us good works so that we may walk in them. Paul here, once again, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
I was going to tell this illustration whether or not my father was here, but he's here, so we have to go through with it anyway. When I was a little kid, and even when I wasn't a little kid, when I'm an adult, uh, there's a phrase that my dad would say to me, and I'm going to see if you can, you can pick up on this. Because of three things, you expected me to act a certain way. Do you remember what those three, three things are? Because I'm a gentleman. Yep. Yes. And he would say that to me, wouldn't you? How many times have you said that to me over the years? hundred times a lot, right? Over the however many years of life I've been alive, he would say that to me. He would say, Andrew, you are a gentleman, you are a winter, and you are a Christian. And I always thought it was corny. Frankly, I still do a little bit. But it's something that it sticks in your mind. It says, because you are these things, I expect you to act a certain way. I have his last name. He expects me to walk worthy of that last name. He expects me to live up to that last name. He has certain expectations on me because of who I am, because of my identity, because I share his name, because I share, more importantly, Christ's name, because I am a Christian. He says, you need to walk worthy of this. He didn't use those words, but that's the idea. Paul here says, because of the calling to which you have been called, because God from before the foundation of the world called us into his family, because we are adopted in Christ, because God has called us from one way of life, from walking in the ways we used to live into walking in good works, because God is calling to us as a father calls his son out of a burning building, he just says, jump. Because God has called us, He urges us, Paul here does, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We are to live up to the calling that we have received. We are not the same people as we used to be. We've been redeemed. We are new. We are one body. We are the children of God. We are to live our lives walking under this calling. So what does that mean practically? On a day-to-day level, what does it mean to walk worthy of the calling that you have received? Well, Paul explains that in verses 2 and 3. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, being quick to keep up the unity of the Spirit. This unity that so often breaks apart, that so easily drifts you know, so easily just breaks down, eager to maintain that. That's what walking worthy of the calling is, in the bond of peace. The illustration, I think, that will work well here is the illustration of siblings. Uh, I have a younger brother and an older sister. Um, You've met a number of them. I believe they were both here on my ordination day. Uh, Some of you met my brother this past week and the week before that because he stopped by to help install the lights in my office. It's now bright in there. I like it. Um, But I I grew up with siblings. I grew up with an older sister and a younger brother. I was the dreaded middle child who definitely wasn't loved as well as the other two. I'm I'm just kidding. I was loved fine. But if you had if you had siblings, if you have siblings, then you kind of understand the experience of what it's like to live with siblings. You get on each other's nerves. 
You fight with each other. I remember one time, I don't even know what we were fighting about, but one time I got into a fist fight with my brother. Don't know what it was about, but I punched him, and it, I don't know what happened. But that, that's just what brothers are for, right? That's what sisters are for. They're, you're to be rivals with each other. That's just how it works out. Because when you share a space with somebody else, right? when you share the backseat of a car, when you share a room, as I did with my brother, when you live in proximity to each other, because we are sinful human beings, you get on each other's nerves. It's just how it is. And so, you know, it's common experience for people who have brothers and sisters growing up to annoy each other, to do mean things to each other, to offend each other. However, today, I can text my brother and say, hey, I need help installing a light in my office. And he just says, yeah, I'll be over after work. My brother was the best man in my wedding. I was the best man in his We're brothers. Despite all that rivalry, despite all that competitiveness, despite the fact that I hit him in the face for some reason, who knows why, 15 years ago, we're brothers. There's a unity there that survives and endures past all the rivalry. We're a family. That's what family is. And so when Paul here looks at, or when he, when he talks about the unity of the church, maybe family is a good illustration, right? We are united into one body. I didn't choose, you know, who I was going to be born into a family with. I was just born into a family with them. And yes, we got on each other's nerves. Yes, we offend each other, but we are united into one body. This unity here assumes a couple different things. And I want to just highlight both of these things, and then we'll conclude. First off, if we are part of a body that often seeks to break apart, if we are part of a body where we offend each other, it assumes that we are close enough to each other as a church now. It assumes that we are close enough to each other to offend each other. It assumes that we are living life with each other, that we are spending enough time with each other, that we as believers united into this church have the opportunity to offend each other. The picture of church Paul is looking at here is not a church where we, where we slip in the back and try to blend in with the crowd and then go our separate ways and don't get involved in the life of the church. It is not a picture of a church where you, know, you go to one church on a Sunday morning because you like the, you like the worship or you like the, the preaching and then you send your kids to another church for youth group. It's not that picture of a church at all. It's a family, a body bonded together. Because if we are going to get on each other's nerves, if the unity that we have in the Spirit is going to break down, we have to be close enough to each other for that to happen. If we are truly going to love one another, if we are truly going to confess our sins to one another, if we are truly going to serve each other as Christ has served us, if we are truly going to forgive one another, we must be close as siblings are close. Paul assumes that. That's just part of the fabric of this letter. Because if we're just a bunch of people who gather in this room on Sunday morning and they go our separate ways and our lives aren't weaved together at all, then who is there to offend? How is the unity of the Spirit threatened? Paul just assumes closeness. And secondly, 
as we've already mentioned a little bit, verse number three, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. On the one hand, Paul assumes that we are knit together as a body. On the other hand, he assumes that we will fight for our unity. Now, I want to, I feel like we need to, I need to pause here and issue a warning to this church. I'm about to go through something, and I think that what we are going to do, or many of us, is going to think of people who have left this church and assume that they should be back here. Names are going to pop into our head. We're going to say, oh, they left. They shouldn't have left. I'm still here, and maybe we're going to think that we're a little bit better than them. Don't do that. That's sin. What I want you to do here is think how you, as believers who are currently here, currently members of this congregation, currently committed, how you can maintain the, the, the unity of the Spirit. Don't let your mind slip to other people. Don't compare yourself. That's not what we're doing here. That is sinful. Look at your own heart. But Paul assumes here, on, you know, on the one hand, that we are united together. On the other hand, that we as a group of people are committed to each other fiercely. There are things that will come in between us. We will say things to each other that are dumb, that we shouldn't say. We will say hurtful things to each other. We will say things to each other that are misunderstandings, but that seek to drive us apart anyway. We will have different opinions with each other, but we are one body. And the solution to that is not to, it's not to withdraw from someone. It's not to say, oh, you know, they said something offensive to me, so I'm just going to not talk to them on Sunday mornings, or I'm going to leave the church. No, that's not it. We must be eager to maintain the unity that we have through the Spirit. We must jump at the opportunity to maintain that unity, even though the world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to tear us apart. We must confess our sins when we've offended other believers. We must forgive other sins when they've sinned against us. We shouldn't be quick to leave this body. There are reasons to leave a church that are good. But they're few and far between. Be eager to maintain the unity that you have here. We are a family. I realize that when I use that illustration of a family, that for some people, it can be a really, really hard illustration, right? Some people grew up with good families. Some people grew up with really bad families. I am blessed to have a good relationship with my parents and my brother and sister. Not everyone is that way. And I know that. What I want to do here is urge you to be united to this family. Our allegiance to the church, our allegiance to the body of Christ, is greater than any other allegiance. That is the tie that will last us through death and into eternity. An allegiance that we have to a sports team, an allegiance that we have to a political party, an allegiance that we may have to a country, all of those things are temporary and will pass away. We are united to this body of believers for eternity. And it may be difficult now. There are those things where we get on each other's nerves. Those things that threaten the unity of the body. But there will come a day when Christ makes all things new, when everything will be fully united under the headship of Christ. 
when we won't have to struggle with these things anymore. And this church will be a perfect source of fellowship for us all. So I encourage you, let this church, let the church be your family, be united to us. I'm not saying it's going to go very smoothly. There will be things that threaten our unity. But be united to us. And be quick, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He is the one who has united us together. He is the one who is the deposit. He is the one who makes sure that we will be redeemed on that last day. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good. Lord, I praise you that you have redeemed us. I praise you that individually our sins are forgiven. I praise you that corporately, Lord, as a group of people, we are no longer far off. but We can be close. We can be united through Jesus. Be united into Jesus through the Spirit. Lord, so that we can worship you truly. I pray that you would be with this body of believers right here. Lord, that we would be, on the one hand, close enough to each other as a family is, close enough to get on each other's nerves, close enough to offend each other. I also pray that as those things happen, Lord, that we would be quick as a body of believers to forgive, quick to be united to those among us. Knit us together, I beg you, O God, by your Holy Spirit. Make us one, even as you are one. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.